All right, welcome to The Big Picture, The Paradigm Show, where we talk about macro markets as well as micro market structure. So I'm joined today by my co-host David, um, our resident macro expert, and we're actually, I mean, our, our third co-host isn't here today, as some of you might have noticed, um, Joe Cruy, <laughs> which I think I pronounced that right, apparently. I mean, he, <laughs> he corrected me last last episode i was like hey man you've been butchering my name for like the last couple weeks so hopefully i pronounced that right sorry joe if i didn't um and instead we actually have filling in for him today is uh tommy johnson a prolific DeFi builder and quant and a good friend of mine so thanks tommy for being here thanks for having me um i guess we'll just start off with the um quintessential question that everyone asked on podcast but can you give us a little bit of your background for people who don't know you yeah so i've been a software engineer for the last 10 years i actually studied electrical engineering and was a hardware engineer for a little bit in a past life and uh did a lot in hospitality tech a few years ago and was always dabbling in the crypto space building some solidity stuff in 2017 2018 and went full-time after winning a, a hackathon on the solana blockchain and so I've been building on Solana for the last two, almost two and a half years now. Ever since they launched on Mainnet, I've been hacking on Solana. What What were you doing specifically before you jumped into blockchain? And like, why did you jump into blockchain in the first place? When I was in college, my brother and a business partner started a peer-to-peer marketplace for software engineers to connect with business students who had ideas. So we ran that for about four years. I did that for full time for one year out of college. So to make money though, that became more like a recruiting job rather than a tech play. So we all decided to shut that down, go our separate ways. My brother went on to Blockfolio. My other, the other business partner went to Morning Brew that his friends, it's a newsletter that his friends have started. Um, and then I went into hospitality tech. So I was building loyalty programs and reward programs in the boutique hotel space for the last four years before going full-time into crypto the last mm. two years. Cool. And like, actually, can you list some of the things that you've done? So when we were at the Solana conference, you like whipped out this list on stage when you were speaking and we were like, Hey, this is what we've done as Psy options here in in the the like you know the blockchain option DeFi space. Can you list some of those things? Because that was pretty funny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Let me see if like I have a, a, a gist. I mean, so we're the first physically settled American style options protocol in crypto. No one had done that before. Um, there was a few. That's kind of why we built it. The reason we jumped into Psy options was we wanted to automate an options trading strategy. And our brokerage wouldn't give us API access. And we took a lay of land and no one had built like the true risk profile of an option that like just wasn't possible on uh, on Ethereum. Um, so we were the first ever to do that. Uh, then we were the first group to make an acquisition in like, like the Solana ecosystem. I don't know really if that's been done elsewhere, but... Uh, that really gave us an interesting infrastructure. We have a decentralized organization that has two separate contributing entities that don't actually own each other. It was not like a true acquisition by M&A standards. Um, it was really just like incentivization of like, hey, we work well together. Like, let's just let's keep this going. But you guys don't launch a token. Here's some funding. Here's whatever coming from the foundation that created Psy. Um, we had the most successful FTX IEO in history. And, you know, that that is 
locked in stone now because I don't think anyone will be able to uh, challenge that going forward given what's happened. Um, and we're the first ever decentralized organization to move all of our off-chain, like the foundation's off-chain SAFs, which are really just like sales of future tokens. That's how you kind of do private round investments on-chain. So there's a four-year vesting schedule with a cliff and a monthly linear vest after that. And no one had really put that on chain with governance voting power uh, previously. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Can you really quickly explain what a DAO is? Yeah, so Before, DAO... Just in case people don't know. DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. For those who have followed me on Twitter, you know there's nothing autonomous about it. I like to call it just a decentralized organization. Uh, but really what it is is a way to organize people in a decentralized manner that doesn't require the typical legal paperwork that you have in traditional companies and organizations where there's some company that owns other companies or employs people. Uh, you have this decentralized organization that contributors can request grants and funding from. And uh, it's kind of the central point where you want all the value to go to that DAO. And then it, the, the group of members holding uh, governance rights to that DAO can then decide how that those funds get used and distributed. All right. So now that we got all that out of the way, we kind of have a foundation upon which to build, right? So um, like we are interested obviously here at Paradigm in options and decentralized options and um, decentralized trading. Um, we partner with some uh, vaults. So I know you guys, you guys also have some vaults. So I have some questions for you, like, because you're kind of like the expert now, um, in, well, DeFi in, in this group, anyway, you're, you're the DeFi expert. Um, I mean, maybe you can give us like, like a, um, a quick or brief overview of how decentralized finance has evolved over the past few years and like how options came into that. And then like, what, the, what is the state of it now given current events? Yeah, so I think <clears throat> decentralized finance started out as like a lot of primitives um, and you're building these basic building blocks that can be put together to create <clears throat> more complex use cases. So I think DeFi really took off a few years ago when we saw peer-to-peer -peer trading with automated market makers, AMMs, where any individual could provide capital as a LP liquidity partner and uh, a provider and um, and then other people could trade against that. Then we saw borrow lending protocols like Aave and, and stable AMMs <clears throat> and things like that. So all these basic individual components. And then I think DeFi evolved a little bit when you saw margin based trading with DYDX, although I don't know if that's fully decentralized given how like the matching engine works. But then there's, um, you know, things like Mango, where you basically take a borrow lending protocol with a, a central limit order book exchange and merge it together. And then you have margin based spot trading. And so like we're still on this like very low level, um, like we just have a few primitives and we're just starting to put them together uh, to build more robust infrastructure like you would have in traditional finance. So I think it's a very it's very complex in DeFi because you have to build everything on chain specifically to that runtime. So the engineering difficulties are a lot harder than if you're building in a off chain where you can just throw a bunch of hardware and servers at it. You're not dealing with distributed systems and and all these other constraints. So it's there's definitely a battle to to build more complex stuff, but 
but things are moving that direction. And so I think like a lot of things mentioned there were really linear products like trading or borrow. I mean, borrow lending is not even really linear, but um, <clears throat> and perpetual futures have been on chain. And so options and getting nonlinear derivatives is just the next step. Uh, there's a lot of interesting use cases to hedge positions uh, and just physically settled options can incentivize contributors without just giving them spot tokens. There's there's a ton of use cases for options that people don't even really like think about every day. Okay, so I want to get into that. But first, I want to ask a question about DOIDX. You said it wasn't completely decentralized. Why Why is that? Can you explain that? I don't know the ins and outs. I'm not a, a DOIDX like you know, power user or anything like that. But, uh, you know, you can have in decentralized finance, you can have certain aspects that are on chain and then you can have off chain processes or things like that. Right. Like let's take an, uh, on chain protocol that has an Oracle dependency. These oracles have some on chain data store and then there's off chain, you know, nodes or keepers or whatever you want to call it that are then piping data on chain. And this Oracle programs like aggregating, making sure things are in line and spitting out one like common number. But like it relies on off-chain processes. And so there's, you know, some some exchanges and it's it's for good reason. I mean, on-chain is one really hard to like build everything on-chain and two, it's just not efficient. You can't really get you can't put an entire matching engine on Ethereum L1. Like that's why there's been no like true clob there. Um and so that's that's kind of what I mean. Like if you have off-chain processes, like it's not fully decentralized and if you're relying on that stuff. Yeah. Side note, uh, CLOB is central limit order book for people who don't know. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Doc. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tommy, you're talking like everyone just understands you inherently. But, Been uh, in this bubble yeah. for two years, you know, you just kind yeah. of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so actually I have a question for David. Like... Talking about like, I mean, you speak with clients all the time, um, every day, like that's your thing. So what's like the sentiment around decentralized options or De uh, DeFi in general? Are people still like, you know, I'm not going to touch that with the 10 foot pole or are people more interested in it now? I, th I think those like that are core sort of crypto and, um, and here for the right reasons. I, I, I think everyone sees it going that way or would like to see things going that way. Um, but I mean, as, as Tom has alluded to this, it's still so early in, in the development and, and of the infrastructure around that. But um, I mean, it's, it's been interesting to me, like post FTX. Um, and I don't know if Tommy can maybe speak to this a little bit more, but, um, you know, to see sort of volumes actually um, have increased uh, quite significantly across sort of DeFi platforms, uh, DeFi trading platforms. Um, so I, I guess all the things that have happened over the past year and, and the sort of failure of centralized entities um, kind of, you know, justifies the whole value proposition for for crypto and the idea that we, that we should move to you know certainly on-chain settlement um and and uh and and DeFi generally so I, th I think the appetite's definitely there um i i think certainly for some of the sort of big institutions looking to come into the space i i just think from a tech point of view it's it's just such a, a huge leap for them. Um, I mean, certainly like some more, some more like traditional um, sort of funds and hedge funds, you know, that the, they typically bulk things onto existing sort of risk, risk systems. Um, so the idea that they're going to be able to kind of manage their risk um, 
and and you know kind of combine their their on-chain type risk in, into their sort of uh, off-chain sort of risk models is quite difficult so i think there's a lot to work out um but i i think the certainly the interest is there um and and then obviously the the other big thing i guess with defi um is is the whole sort of kyc aml issue um which which a lot of guys are, are going to face problems with um so you know how, how do they from a regulatory point of view sort of get over that um so yeah so i i, th- I think it's one of those that um you know so that will all end up um down that path and interesting like tommy's i think um in the interim it'll be some kind of combination of both um with with sort of um off-chain aspects and then that combines um with with some kind of on-chain settlement or what have you all right so you were talking about like risks um that you know large institutions are wary of when when getting into DeFi. like tommy maybe you could like I don't know, enlighten us onto the risks that DeFi and specifically like derivatives um, are facing right now. And like, how do we overcome those risks? Like what needs to be built out um, so that it's easier for these, you know, types of institutions to jump into DeFi and feel comfortable with it? And I think there's a, there's a lot of topics that could be like, pulled it's a, broad in from question. That. It's a very yeah. broad question. Cause like, there's, there's like the risk aspects there. Like, and like when I say risk, I mean, smart contract risk that's like one major concern there's regulatory risks that's another major concern and then there's risk adjusted returns and whether it's worth it for them to jump in there so one thing that i I noticed is there are market makers and big institutions that won't touch things for compliance reasons they're based in the U.S. and they can't touch under collateralized derivatives or things like that. Their compliance team won't let them do that. I've talked to them many times, month over month, and it's still just the same thing. There's just no clarity. So I think one thing is we can't really build for that, right? We're waiting for regulations and, and regulators to actually give some more concrete uh, their stance or some precedence, right? Uh, then smart contract risk. It's really interesting because these institutions, they want to see two audits, but I've noticed that like auditors, they're not going to like give any insurance. It's up to the DAO or protocol or team to give insurance. So I think it's really audit plus insurance. Audits aren't a smoking gun to like solving these problems. We've seen auditors that miss things. We've seen audited protocols still get hacked and there's no... There's no real harm there for the auditors. So there's they have no skin in the game, right? So how good is that piece of paper? But that's what institutions really want to see right now anyways to mitigate smart contract risk. And then I think this goes more into a deeper topic of like the macro environment, depending on where these institutions are, where they're based, what like domicile and what access to other financial infrastructure and traditional finance they have begs the question of why should they be there? Like, why are you going to put your assets into an under or over collateralized borrow lending protocol to earn 2% yield if you're a US-based institution that can get 4.7% on treasuries right now, on short-term treasuries? So the landscape right now is just very interesting because the high interest rate environment changes the way you look like institutions are looking at everything. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Actually, David, that would be, that's a great question for you. Like where, what do you think about all that? And what do you think about, 
um, you know, interest rates over the next year. And if that changes um, anything when it comes to like DeFi borrow lending. Um, yeah. I, I mean, obviously a lot of the, a lot of the DeFi like opportunities that were attractive in a zero rate world are, are no longer that attractive. Um, I mean, we, we've spoke before on here, right. Um, I'm still of the view. I mean, you know, rate, rates aren't getting cut immediately, but I, I think we'll be next. Um, but that's, that's a, that's a story for another day. And that's certainly not one to play out this year. So, yeah, I, I think, um, I, I definitely think, um, you know, the, the risk rewards not there at the moment to be playing in DeFi. Um, and, and, and yeah, why, why not just sit there and, and, and parked in, in treasuries. Um, so the, the hurdle rate, um, to, to be, a, be a part of some of these yield pools, um, is obviously much, much higher. Um, and that, and that's probably actually, we, we talk about, um, you know, some of the, some of the counterparty risks and stuff like that. Um, but actually these, these sort of, sort of macro risks, if you like, or, or, you know, the, the sort of, um, risk reward, um, is, is probably one of the things that set, there's lots of ways to kind of make money in the space. Um, that that's not just sat there, just, you know, earning yield in a pool, uh, or in a, in a, in a farm. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I, I think it just kind of, you know, creates a, a sort of larger barrier and, and to Tommy's point, um, that the the hurdle rate to make a decision to to sort of invest in the infrastructure to start sort of playing about in DeFi has now got a lot higher, um, and I, I guess there's going to be a lot for a lot of tech businesses in a higher rate world um, that 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 opportunity cost and, and risk reward equation um, looks a lot more sort of difficult now. Um, yeah, yeah. I I was looking at the dot chart yesterday though. Um... I think I don't remember who posted it, but they were saying that the market's predicting a 125 bip cut in 2024. Mm. Is that? Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's where the market's pricing, where um, yeah, interest rate futures are pricing. Yeah, so that would be interesting. And um, oh, I remember who posted it. Yeah, so he was saying that there's 125 bips coming uh, cut, you know, being predicted for 2024. But also, 2024 is the year of the halving, the Bitcoin halving, if you believe in that. Um, having a significant effects on price. Um, yeah, anyway, so I thought that was cool. Um, the other question I was going to ask was, and maybe this is, this is for both of you, but like, where, where do you think DeFi and specifically like, um, option protocols go in the next, like, you know, couple of years, like what, what gets built out? Cause Tommy, like you mentioned that, you know, you can use options for other things. Um, so maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, one thing we're we're starting to focus on is those other use cases. I mean, so one thing we're doing is physically settled options for contributors or building out our project fusion is what we're calling it right now. But the ability to airdrop physically settled options to wallets instead of having to just drop spot tokens. I mean, we see that the best thing to do if you get an airdrop is sell it immediately. <laughs> Maybe bonk is, uh, you know hot right now and, and throwing that off if you just held it for a day or two and then sold it. Um, but so that's, that's one use case that we're really pushing and, and investing in. And then it's really just about other structures and, and unique structures. So with things being extremely volatile and liquidity kind of getting wiped out right now, I think volatility is going to, you know, come back and be high for while we're in this bear market. Um, and so doing, less of just covered call and secured put selling and 
doing more vertical spreads and, and other structures is, is kind of where we're investing in on the option side. Yeah. Yeah. That would be sweet. So like when you, yeah, can you explain that a little bit actually? Cause I'm, I'm just curious, like why would you drop an option to someone's wallet and how would that work? Yeah. Well, all right. First of all, options are complex, like financial instruments, right? Not, not everyone understands how it works. And so it's really about making a simple user interface, not showing any complex Greeks like Theta. It's really just about, we just care about intrinsic value. If I were to exercise this right now, what do I get and what's it worth? Not caring about if I were going to actually just sell the option. So let's say you take, let's say size trading at two cents and you write an option for one, a one cent strike price you are giving and you just give that to someone you're giving them 50% intrinsic value i guess 100% intrinsic value so if you were going to then if you exercise you are putting up 1 cent to then receive a token that's worth 2 cents so you really just have 1 cent of free value mm. and so you could do if you have an at the money option where it's let's say 2 cents the token's trading at 2 cents and the strike price is at 2 cents you're giving someone something that has no intrinsic value, but you're giving them potential upside if it's a long tenor option. And that just means the expiration date is long. So if you give them one, two, 10 year tenors or expiration dates, then the recipient is going to have upside in that project and, and be bought in or at least be rooting for the project to go up. So what they received has some value. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's cool. So it's like an it's an alternative to like just airdropping random tokens, right? Exactly. And the same thing can be done with liquidity mining rewards. Instead of just giving liquidity providers the token, which we've seen, you know, the big players just ape into these things into the, as an LP, take these rewards and then just dump it. You can see that there's just insane downward pressure on those tokens. And it ultimately hurts the project and the community. And it's actually just terrible for retail because those are the people who are usually left holding the bag. But if you give options or at the money options, you're just giving them upside. And so it's kind of like baking in a, a cost basis for those recipients if they do choose to exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, are... How would that, that get hedged, Tommy? So you're not really worried about uh, like hedging it as the as the writer. So the writer is essentially the the project, the DAO that has this supply of tokens and was going to use it to incentivize products, incentivize contributors. It's almost like uh, incentivize stock options or things like that, right? Where you're you're the the organization and you're writing, you know, yeah, options. Yeah, you, you make sense. Yeah, uh, really just to incentivize your employees, your community members, your liquidity providers. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Um, because I have been left holding the bag on too many projects. <laughs> it would have been nice. Me too. <laughs> well, I, I think I think what's interesting about it, um, you know, we, we talk about options um, like kind of being risky and saying anything that certainly if you don't understand what you're doing, you, you shouldn't be messing about with, but options can also be a really good tool for like mitigating risk or at least knowing what your risk is. Uh, um, yeah. Cause it's always seen as, you know, these weapons of mass destruction um, are, are derivatives, but actually they can, they can help give you leverage with, with having like limited sort of risk um, as well. Yeah. Someone should create like a, an entire educational series around options and futures and explain it simply who should do that. 
I feel like we should do that. <laughs> yes. Justin, you're the man for it. <laughs> I'm working on it. We'll get we'll get that out in a couple of weeks here. Um yeah, okay. So so last thing before we go, um, David, can you I know like macro hasn't changed too much, like, but there were a few numbers that came out today. Could you just walk us through your view on those numbers? Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny, I, I tweeted earlier uh, ahead of the ADP numbers, um, basically a reminder to everyone to ignore ADP, but the ADP payrolls is, is a kind of private employment report. Um, anyway, it came out strong today. It's always a bad indicator for what non-farm payrolls is going to be. Like you think that, you know, if it's strong, then we're going to get a stronger print tomorrow. Ne never works out that way. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but it, it's pretty useless in terms of uh, trying to predict or forecast what, what tomorrow's non-farm payrolls number is going to be. So um, kind of ignore that, but I, th I think we're still in, um, you know, quiet kind of holiday thin trading. People still haven't fully, because we're still kind of battling this strong labor market. Um, and, and I think we kind of kind of be like that probably for a couple of months in this, um, you know, kind of going from data point to data point. Um, but, but I say, I, I still think we're, we're in this change in macro where we're sort of moving towards pricing the end of a, a fed hike cycle. I, I think the big thing that has changed, um, is we're now moving from inflation sort of fear and pricing and, and trading around that to now sort of the growth fear. I think most people are comfortable with the idea that we're past peak inflation and now the big risk is everyone's focused on is growth. And that, that has sort of, sort of vastly different cross asset implications, Name, namely, I think it means long duration platform um, reasonably well because um, crypto is is the longest sort of duration asset so i still think we're in that environment but i think it's going to be a choppy sort of few months uh, as we kind of come into march when when the um when when the fed will actually pause um and and see how how things take effect but uh, yeah so so not much has changed um we're all a little bit schizophrenic around individual data points but i think the growth slowdown is what's concerning people which is why you're seeing oil sell off and bonds after we had the uh, bank of japan and china reopening and and some some uh fugazi around uh around christmas period i, I kind of feel like we're, we're resuming the the sort of bond rally um but yeah it's not gonna be a straight line i, I think it's gonna be a little bit bit volatile yeah i was <clears throat> i was interested i was watching the, um, bonds the other day um or I, I was tweeting about it so it'll be interesting to see like what those what those do over the next like two quarters but yeah, like you said, yeah. I, I, I've, I've got to say as well, I mean, I, I feel in quite a lone camp right now with, yeah. with that view, um, which is actually from a macro where, where you kind of like to be. But, um, you know, it, it just I, I struggle to see what why people are bearish bonds when we're talking about sort of global growth and slowdown or recession. Um, and particularly when we're sort of past that peak inflation. Um, so, yeah, it's um, but, but it's interesting. And, and I kind of feel like this kind of volatile response we get around data at the moment is kind of what I'd expect to see when we're in, in the process of kind of regime change, um, because there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, once once you kind of start to move more fully into a regime, then then that's when you get like the kind of buy the dip type reactions, or what have you. But right now, I don't think people are too sure what to do with things. But um, but you got to say, I think crypto looks looks like kind of continues just to just to bleed lower, um, which is not great for us. But um, but yeah, it's it's quite interesting. The volatility at the moment is in the tradfire space.
Actually, t- t- Tommy, one, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was saying about, um, you know, conversation I'm having around institutions getting into um, sort of DeFi. What, what's the kind of makeup of your client base? Uh, I mean, so we talk a lot with crypto native market makers, but then we started branching out to more uh, traditional finance institutions that are crypto adjacent, have, you know, done a little things, have set up a Fireblocks account, something like that. Uh, so we're not really pulling in like extremely fresh people who don't know what crypto is or aren't really like looking at it from an asset class perspective. Um, our, I think to define like we're, we're still focused on like early adopters. I think that's the best way to put it uh, and finding product market fit in this current environment. Because I think like after the FTX stuff and, and the current macro environment and, and higher interest rate environment, uh, the products that have been built to date uh, under the Dow is there's not a lot of like massive new interest in it. So it's really just about building for those early adopters and then pushing that to, to new partners as things settle down. That's a great point. Let's end this one here. And, um, and yeah, thank you for coming on, Tommy. Thanks for having me.